Hi, this is LGBTQ&A, where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Io Tillett-Wright. Io is an artist, activist, writer of the new memoir Darling Days, and creator of the proto-project Self-Evident Truths. Stay tuned. Hey, Io. Hi. You like that music? Shwing. <laughs> it's so peppy. Right? Yeah, so much pep. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> we I feel need like that... we need to be like broken out into like nine screens of our, oh, each other are. and ourselves. Absolutely. And we're bobbing. Bing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so before I read your book, I was going to ask you how you chose the name Io. <laughs> I thought but it was then something, you did your homework. And then I read the book, yeah. But I thought it was something that you like renamed yourself to like Everybody fit does. the new you. Everybody does. No, my parents knew already. The me that was coming, the forthcoming child was not to be gendered. So it's they amazingly me. gender neutral. Yeah, I'm very lucky. It's do you? I mean, do you actually think it's like fortuitous, or is that? I think it plays into everything that my parents are about, which is just not playing by the rules. Okay. So it makes perfect sense. My dad was more into like the conceptual nature of the name than he was about like whether or not it fit into some category of something that society wanted him to. Yeah. I mean, knowing that they named you after Jupiter's moon mm. kind of tells you everything you need to know. Well, okay, here's the real story, though, is that they didn't name me after the moon as much as my dad thought that he invented the name, and then, which is a problem that runs in my family, and then later figured out, oh, it's actually a moon of Jupiter and a shadow of joy in Nigeria and a Greek goddess. But they didn't know that. He was like, oh, I like how this looks, and I like that there's a line in a circle and everything. And then later, people were like, you know that that's actually a thing, right? And he said, oh, yeah, but he didn't know that. That's perhaps even weirder. <laughs> yeah. He literally drew a line in a, like a circle. Yeah. He said that you can see, I mean, look, here's a line in a sphere. You can see a line in a sphere and everything that's three dimensional. And he liked that it was a high and a low sound. And he liked that it was input output. And then digital information happened, you know? That's amazing. My dad's a conceptual dude. <laughs> Yeah. And then now IO is everywhere with like iOS. iOS, <laughs> IO Digital Cable. The first time I called a friend and I said, hi, I asked for my friend and his little sister picked up the phone. She was like six and she goes, what's your name? And I said, IO. She said, like the digital cable. And I said, my life is over. Thank you, sweet child. I'm going to go kill myself now. Oh my God. Good thing you didn't. Yeah, I know. Uh, um, okay. So your gender has been fairly fluid and mutable throughout your life. Do you think that it's all been getting to this place where you are today or will it continue to change and evolve? Oh my God, I hope it continues to change and evolve. I'm 31 years old. I'm not made out of salt. I hope that I don't stop and just freeze now. Um, I think that that's like, that is the important part is continuing to allow yourself room to grow and change at every point, no matter how attached you become to something. And it's interesting, you know, when I first started writing this book identified as a she so the publishers all knew me as a she and I, you know and six months before the book comes out i'm all um excuse me just so you know and they were like what and obviously because of the content of the book i lived as a boy for eight years as a kid so they they weren't super shocked but i yeah. think the publicist had a panic attack because it's like oh my god do i have to call everybody back and say oh his pronouns have changed like it was a huge thing yeah they handled it with so much grace and aplomb but yeah in a moment where a lot of people are suddenly going to be thrust into talking about you and defining who you are to then change your definition has been 
an interesting ride. I'm sure. I mean, and I asked because the back of the book, the author bio has, is, has no gender. Yeah. There's no pronouns. Pronounless. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's so, I, I don't Good want catch. to, thank you. I don't want to judge and tell you what you have to do, but I'm curious why you do not like stick with gender neutral pronouns. So you don't need to keep changing. Like you're allowed to keep changing. Uh, to me, it's like so much stress to keep doing that. Um, that's a strange question because uh, he feels right to me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, gender neutral pronouns don't actually feel like they apply to me. Okay. And I, I guess I'm asking that because I'm so impressed that you do not have stress or like self judgment or are not afraid to continue evolving. And like, I think that example is so important in our culture. Yeah, I don't, I come from a world, I mean, the reason that I wrote this book is because I come from a world where that wasn't put on me as a kid. And so I am like an ambassador from a distant planet where you get to be whatever you feel that you are, truly feel that you are. Um, And that's changed, you know, that changed. There's a misconception that when I was five or six, I decided to be a boy, but I was living as a boy. It was just that at five or six, kids start categorizing each other and deciding who's allowed to do what based on gender. And so I was confronted with the notion of having to pick one. And then I thought, oh, well, if that the boys do all of X and girls do all of Z, I've never done Z. So I'm definitely a boy. And I lived as that for eight years. And then at 14, I got hit with puberty and I was like, I would like to try being the thing that everybody considers normal and see what that feels like. So I lived as a girl for, God, 14 years and like a bisexual girl for like six or seven years and then a gay girl. And then at 28, I was like, I think actually I had it right when I was a kid. Um, Yeah, I'm not gender neutral. Yeah. I'm actually a boy. I just, you know, it's taken me a long time to figure that out. Um, I I hope that my question didn't offend you. It's interesting to me that you, as on this show, an LGBT show, are the first person that's ever posed a question that has said, why don't you? Yeah. No one has done that. And that's interesting to me. And I, I, like, sought so hard to not be judgmental. But I think Why is that so hard for you? Um, it... Like what about this? Let's turn oh, no, this around. Oh, what sorry. about this? Oh, no, and it's not. You? It's not with, the, with your story. Oh. It's just in general. Um, I think that um, we, as a society, like reading mm. your narrative of uh, going between girl and boy, mm. it's um, in my mind. Was it me? I would have not wanted to. I think coming out is so hard. Mm. I would not have wanted to continue coming out. That feels like a stressful experience for me. I never came out. That's why. Or keep to changing, perhaps. Yeah, but, but that's, I think, right there is yeah. that you just hit the nail on the head. It's not stressful for me because I don't live in a world, thankfully, because of my parents and my friends, where I have to come out. And if I had to do that process every time, I would be so traumatized. But I don't have to, like gear up all of my arguments and my forces and my wins and then go and be like, okay, everybody sit down. This is what's going on. I get to just be like, hey, dad, listen, I think that actually I'm a man and I think I had it right when I was five. And so can you try to use male pronouns? And I get him saying, well, what does that mean to you? Okay, how do we do this? And it's a conversation and it's not this like traumatic instance of me busting out and being like, everything has changed. You change. You know what I mean? It's like, I hate the idea that people have to come out because coming out is based on the assumption that you are something until you change that notion. And it's like, 
why is the assumption that anybody is straight or cis or in you know anything? So that's what I'm advocating for, and that's why is because I don't have oh. that trauma ex- trauma experience every time. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah, I mean, I mean that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and going off of that, and like your family and your world. Yeah, it was so fascinating the dynamic in the book between there weren't there were things you didn't have growing up always mm. with like stable housing and f- stable food but you never once had a parent questioning your gender that's the reason that i mean writing a book at i started writing at 27 and i'm 31 now it's there's an inherent narcissism in the act of writing about yourself and it's gets stuck in my throat a lot but the reason why it's okay and it's been okay is because the one thing that my parents unequivocally got right always 100% of the time that most parents do not was that they accepted me for who I said that I was. And I think that the dichotomy of the things that lacked and the things that people in conservative society use to dismiss parents as failures or bad parents, neglect or lack of food or lack of electricity or drug use or whatever, being generally weird. My parents engaged in all of that but got this one fundamental thing so right. And we are we have such strong relationships now, and I feel like I am the person who I am because they supported my sense of dignity and self-respect. And I see so many people who had all the other stuff, who had regular meals and suburban housing and na-na-na-na, and dad is sneaking a whole bottle of gin as soon as he gets home because he hates everybody and doesn't want to be there, and mom is fucking the postman or, like, whatever, and... All of it implodes or falls apart or there's hatred or there's like secret under like undercurrents of awfulness and they don't support each other for who they actually really are. They live in this facade. So I would always choose my life over that. Yeah. You know? And it was so clear, too, that despite your the things your mom, quote unquote, did wrong, mm. if you want to classify it that way her love for you was just like number one immense yeah, like she it wasn't a monster no. like we're crazy it was just, she she was doing everything she thought was right like, yeah. for you yeah and that the book opens with a letter to my mom because i uh as i was writing it my mom has really dropped the ball in a lot of ways in certain moments way worse than others and it's gotten really dark and i keep doing these readings where i read funny scenes and i'm like just so you know the rest of this book is like a murderous death march. But um, I opened the book with a letter to her because I know that despite all of the things that went wrong, her instinct and her desire is to always protect me and to treat me as well as she can. She just doesn't live by society's rules. And I knew it was going to be incredibly painful for her to read first person present, walk through my experience of how much pain she caused me. And I wanted the readers to understand that this book is not about her failings. This book is not an indictment of a person for getting something wrong. This book is about understanding why people do the things that they do that cause you pain so that you can learn to actually have acceptance for how they got where they are and forgiveness for them if you want to continue to have relationships with them. Because I can stand here and I can be like, my mom spilt the milk, my mom spilt the milk. But like, meanwhile, the milk is soaking into the carpet and it's going to start stinking and that's my responsibility to clean up. Yeah. You know, so I'm more concerned with like, okay, mom, do you want to help me clean up this milk or we can just not have a relationship? You know, does that make sense? Yeah. I'm going to take that metaphor as far as I can. No, I like the metaphor. (laughs) Um, And just hearing about your upbringing with your family, but also in the location in New York City, Mm. it felt like a foreign world. 
Mm. Like I felt like I was reading like like Frank McCourt, like Angel's Ashes, and this was the 30s, but yeah. it was the 80s. Yeah, yeah. It it's just um. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> I'll take that. You're welcome. Um, I I just couldn't believe about this like time and this like place in that it was so recent. Yeah, New York is a completely different beast, and it changed so fast, so 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 fast. I don't recognize it anymore when I go home. It's just, I mean, it's all bankers and NYU students, and it's a completely different universe. But I grew up with uh, all low-income housing on my block, and then there was like a 700-man men's shelter across the street, which is where everybody went when they got out of jail or got kicked out of the mental institution or, you know, whatever. I think I call it the abscessed injection point for every fuck-up from far, as far away as Texas. I don't usually quote myself, but I can remember that one. Um yeah, and then there was a, a halfway house for boys or, like, a group home for boys on the corner. And the Bowery Hotel used to be a gas station that was on our corner. And, like, that has all happened in my lifetime, you know, and I don't have that many wrinkles. So, you know, it's all gone very fast. Yeah. Money, 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 money poured into New York. Giuliani, cops, money, artists out. Out. Goodbye. Goodbye, artists. Goodbye. Do, do you? Except my mom. She's still there. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Oh, good. Bitching about the yuppies. <laughs> and mushroom clouds of fluorescent lights that will take them all out oh yeah do, do you have like a healthy relationship with money now from going up with without it fascinating question um oh winning you back <laughs> good yeah no i um you never lost me thank you i i'm very um it's interesting because my mom, I grew up so super poor, so I always have a sense of what it is. Like, I will never allow myself to go broke. I will never allow myself to be hungry. So I'm very careful with money in that way. And I um, didn't grow up with frivolous things, so I don't spend my money on stupid frivolous things. But I also grew up watching my dad, who is the single most generous human being on earth. Like if he made a couple thousand dollars from a thing, he'd be like, let's, you know, I'll spend it on taking you on a trip or like buying food and we'll have a feast. But it was very much communal based generosity. And so my um, all my uh, spending at this point goes to creating spaces and situations in which people that I love can come together, which I think is uh, much healthier than buying handbags, but you yeah. know, that's just me. Okay. I just think of money as a foreign language that you have to learn when you're younger or mm-hmm. it's like so difficult to, I have a yeah. friend who like got evicted recently and I was like, but if you make X and your rent is like Y, you just have to make sure you have like that. And like, like one plus one plus equal two didn't like make sense in his mind. That's me with everything. Really? I mean, I wasn't taught how to take a shower. I wasn't taught about flossing my teeth. I didn't, I don't think that like, it's hard to imagine for anyone who grew up with a real sense of how to be a functional adult, Mm -hmm. what it's like to be raised like a wolf child. But I did not have a towel. You know what I mean? Like the very, very basic things I had no concept of. And and I, I don't want to attribute, or I usually don't want to attribute like normal or not normal to childhoods because like, what is normal? Mm -hmm. But I think it's safe to say that yours was not (laughs) at all. And that was so apparent in the chapter describing your diet, the Mm. food you ate. Mm -hmm. And it was before that point in the book, it was like eye opening, like, oh, wow, this is, this is like poverty. Mm. This is not a lot. Which is poverty that you don't really see in modern storytelling so much anymore. Like, I feel like 
Angela's ashes, like in the depression, there were like generations and generations of people who were telling poverty stories. And now those narratives are being attached to people of color and like different. They're being pushed out, but we don't hear stories about inner city, also white people living in poverty so much. And I, I didn't even really that didn't even occur to me until I started my book started getting compared to other people's stories. And it's like, yeah, that, that is actually a rare, special thing. But I consider normal to be things that most people can relate to. And most of my childhood, most people cannot relate to. So, so growing up though, you have no nothing to compare it to. This is your your parents and their parenting is the one way. When did you start to realize that it was not the norm? Um, there's a chapter in the book where I'm nine and I go to this kid's house in New Jersey for a sleepover and I steal his bar mitzvah money, and um, I remember a few instances like that. You know, my mom was a hoarder. We didn't have electricity a lot. There wasn't food there. That was not where people came for sleepovers or playdates. So I didn't really go for sleepovers or playdates very much either. And I was always acting and there was always something to do. Um, So the rare occasion when I did go and see somebody else's house and how they lived were the moments where I was like, wait a minute, you know, and his mom gave us all mac and cheese or whatever and ice cream and, and it was chill and the relationship with food was chill and I got to eat however much I wanted to feel full. And I was just like, wait, why isn't this my daily life? Like, how is not how is this not what I experience on the daily? And I remember the feeling when I would sleep over at somebody else's house, which, again, I think probably happened twice in my whole childhood. But it was a feeling of of I had fear and then I realized that I didn't need to have the fear. And then I realized, oh, I live in fear every day oh, that's not good, that's not normal. But that's not, like you said, you grow up inside of something, you don't know that it, that's not normal until something clicks. And it clicked around 11 or 12 when a, a, 12, a, a guidance counselor at my school asked me about my home life. And I knew if I tell her the truth about my home life, she's going to freak out. Because I had started to see people's reactions when I would tell them things. They would be like, what? You know, and I, as I discovered that, I think that's when I started to realize that they didn't all live like that, you know? Fascinating. Mm. Man. So, we, can we talk about these self-evident truths? Sure. <laughs> sure. This is a photo project going around and capturing people, I love the phrasing, people who are not 100% straight. Mm. Wait, anyone who isn't 100% Anything other straight. than 100% straight. I, uh... I think that's such like a nice like phrasing. Thank you. It's so low pressure. It took a long time to come to something oh, so simple. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from creating the LGBTQ and a uh, yeah, getting you know. to know the L- yeah yeah. Um, it, I don't. We're so me. I mean, like in my little queer bubble, and mm. that's all I can experience. Mm. So I don't want to ask a hacky question, but what did you learn about our community and like what recurring patterns did you see Mm. seeing so many different queer people from so many different parts of Mm. the country um one recurring theme is people being unbelievably resilient in situations where every single day just walking down the street you're being called a f word you're being looked at you're being yelled at you're being harassed people will go through extraordinary things to be able to feel like they are themselves. And that really blew my mind. And it also gave me this incredible sense of privilege because I grew up in a city and I grew up on a coast. So I grew up and plus with all of these people. So I have a a background that gives me this incredible privilege. Whereas 
so many people have to deal with so much violence, emotional and physical violence every day, and they do, and they stick it out. That really struck me. It also really struck me that we come in literally every size and shape and box, and we're so different. There, the idea that we are a community is kind of a myth. It's a farce because we are linked together by this one very thin binding agent that doesn't actually give us any commonalities. Like as much as straight people are the same, they're not a community because they like to have sex with the same type of person, but we are unified by being marginalized. But that's actually like, it's a pretty thin binding agent. And I found that I had very little in common with a lot of people that I was supposed to be in this community with. So fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it, it just, it blew apart my notion that a a vast swath of society would be the same. So that kind of defies my notions and like the narratives because like mm. um, at least for me like if I go home North Carolina where there's a smaller population uh, of queer people and I hear like the gay voice, someone has it. I'm like just so elated and like my shoulders are relaxed and oh, I want to sure. talk to them and like sure. be friends. Yeah, so I think I that's think, different, though. I think the binding agent, at least there, is that, like, we're, we're the outside. Yes. Yes. I mean, past that. Sure. Like, past the, the, the familiarity of, like, oh, safe, safe place, you are same, you understand me, you're yeah. not going to hurt me. That, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, like, do we actually have anything in common because we are gay? Not necessarily. Right. Do we actually have anything in common because we're trans? No. Whereas I went into it thinking that we did. And wow. going up to a person in a bar and talking to them because they're gay, for me, has often resulted in being like, we have nothing in common at all, you know, besides this one facet of our personalities, which I think is so important to our cause and to how far everything can go in terms of actually gaining equality. It's so important that Caitlyn Jenner is a Republican. It's so important that Caitlyn Jenner can't get things right and that so many of us disagree with her politically because if we don't have that kind of diversity within our own community, it becomes one dimensional and it becomes easy to dismiss. Yeah. But because we have all of this, like we can say, actually, we are just human beings who also happen to be LGBTQIA, XYZ, LMNOP. And I want to believe that that is the direction that we're going to. Like, yeah. How, look how different we are. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's everything that I'm fighting for is not to homogenize us and to say, um, look how normal we are. It's to humanize us and say, look how different we all are and look how different you all are. And these all, like, we are all the same because we're all different and difference is something to celebrate and it's beautiful, you know? Wow. Looking at the pictures themselves, uh, they're they're gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. And I like how simple they are. Just like black background, straight on. The thing about them, though, that keeps them from being, like, quote-unquote simple is, to me, the expression on everyone's faces. It, there's not, like, a posed face mm. in there. Mm. So I want to know, like, how you get that. Like, what are you saying to them? There are some posed faces. You know, it it goes pretty fast, usually. So if I go to a Pride, let's say, for example, Chicago Pride, um, there's a million people and I went up on a stage and I made an announcement and I said, hi, I'm Io. I'm doing a project called Self-Evident Truths and I'm photographing 10,000 people who are anywhere on the LGBT spectrum in all 50 states. And this is Illinois' one chance to represent itself. I'm at that booth. There's that cute boy with the We Are You shirt. Come find us. (laughs) Bang. And people listen to that and I go, and when I have 10,000, I'm going to the National Mall. I'm going to lay them out and do a march on Washington. Join me. And then it's a stampede. So then you've got 
I think I shot 200 and I can't say I shot anymore. Unfortunately, I photographed 275 people in like an eight hour, six hour period, which means there's a line of people waiting and filling out release forms and it's frantic. So they come up and sometimes people have a story they want to share, but sometimes they just are like, okay, what do I do? And I'm like, just stand there. Okay, perfect. Chin down a little bit. Look up. uh, Right. Okay. Oh, you're so beautiful. The second you tell somebody that they're beautiful, that's what you're seeing in those photos. It's like, I'm not going to say it if I don't think it, but most often when you see somebody standing in front of you, bearing their soul because they're proud of who they are and they want to take a stand for what they are, they're beautiful. And then I can tell them that and it's honest and it's something they just opens up and something happens in their eyes and that's what you're seeing, you know? I love that. I do too. <laughs> Did that take too. a while for you to learn? Everything took a while for me to learn because this whole project was started on a kind of a, an instinct where I thought, how is Prop 8 happening? How are people voting against each other's rights based on this weird notion that we're all different from each other? And I thought, I want to introduce people to each other. But I didn't understand that I needed to photograph, you know, thousands of people in all 50 states and the National Mall and like all of that. That all developed over the course of understanding what the project was and understanding what it meant to people and what they needed from it. So, so you're almost at the 10,000 goal. 9,803 in all 50 states. So that's one more shoot. Uh, yes, except that I've, I've shot all of the states. Now I'm only going to do um, my finicky friends who are like, you need to reshoot my photo. And uh, celebrities, basically, who I can't say. I can't say that I've shot Queer America without RuPaul. You know what I mean? <laughs> or Ellen Page. So I need to photograph all of those people and people who've contributed strongly, Kate Bornstein, et cetera, you know? Oh, Kate. Yeah. Those oh, awesome. are, it's important. So I love that. So when you say the National Mall, like, it, it's outdoors. Yeah. Like, I know you're not, like, lying them on, like, the ground. No, I want to do... Um, there have been a few different iterations, but I think I want to use, um, like, exhibition tress, you know, like, I, six foot tall, four feet wide prints of the photos, and then I want to group them by other things besides their gayness or their transness or their whatever. I want to group them by other things that they've identified with. So if somebody's a teacher or if somebody's a mom or somebody's, you know, whatever, group them by that. So it actually becomes a project about intersectionality. It becomes a project of, yes, come and walk through these 10,000 faces. And I guarantee you can't find somebody who doesn't look like a member of your family. But also witness these people for the multiplicity of their identity. They're not only gay. They are also a trucker or a brother, or like other things that they identify with, perhaps more strongly even than the fact that they are LGBT, but they're forced to identify as LGBT because they're legally discriminated against in this country. Ah, so it becomes so important because we're taking those rights away. Yeah, I have to, you have forced me to tell you this thing about myself because I may be fired for it. It's a risk. Wow. In 27 states, I can be fired for this, you know, so. Has your own... um changing relationship with your gender change your sexuality and who you're attracted to not yet but i uh i've been exploring what it would mean to take tea and that is something that they warn you about actually i had a crush on a trans guy i had my first crush on a trans guy and i thought wow this is really accelerating really fast but i went to uh san francisco and i had seen that he was hosting a party and my friend was like we gotta go i want to see this in action and we went to this leather bar and he identifies as a gay trans man um 
and there he was on a bed in some he's he like he's a rent boy you know what i mean he identify he's a sex worker and like that he owns that and that's his space and i thought this is so fascinating and i wanted him i had a crush on him i was like wow i am actually so down and i'm so confused by this and i love the fact that i'm confused by it and so when you ask me if i'm like done changing i'm like no i don't think so Okay. But so I don't know, I'm open to it, but so far no. Besides that one moment, I no. I'm st- I've always been into really feminine girls, so I'm still just a boring, old, boyish looking. Very boring. That's yeah. what I was thinking <laughs> the whole time actually. So predictable. <laughs> so predictable. Um what is this uh the is it a fish on your it's arm? It's a whale shark. A whale shark? Yeah, this is my reminder to myself that no matter how big my problems may feel in a moment, not only am I just one of seven billion humans, but I'm also one of how many countless species of thinking creatures that also have their own things going on and to not get too ahead of myself. It's beautiful. Thank you. Are they all black and white? Uh, oh, Tom yeah. of Finland. Yeah, I've got this is my homage to spending my 20s fighting for gay rights. This one was about surviving depression. This one is about being on the road forever. It's a girl having phone sex. This one's my mom's nickname from the 70s. This one says, keep your shirt on in my dad's handwriting. Not literal shirt, metaphorical shirt. (laughs) Um, I think that's a great place to leave it on. Cool. Yeah, thank you very much for this. Yeah, thank Um, you for having me. Of course. If people want to, like, find your work, should we send them to your website? Yeah, darlingdays.com has all of my stuff. And then you can link out to self-evident. You can go to everything else from there. But darlingdays.com. Cool. Thank you. And of course, all of our stuff's on iTunes, YouTube, if you want to see our faces. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. From executive producers Maria Menunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.